Well, this is Dr. Chuck Bamford and the author of The Strategy Mindset 2.0, a practical guide to the design and implementation of strategy. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Dr. Chuck Bamford to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Strategy Mindset 2.0, A Practical Guide to the Design and Implementation of Strategy. Dr. Chuck Bamford is the managing partner of Bamford Associates, a firm focused on the development of implementable strategic plans and entrepreneurial growth. Chuck is also the author of two of the top strategy and entrepreneurship textbooks used in undergraduate and graduate programs around the world. He serves as adjunct professor of strategy at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, and he's been a professor at the University of Richmond, Texas Christian University, the University of Notre Dame, and Tulane University, amongst others. And over the past 25 years, he has been honored with 22 Professor of the Year awards. Chuck earned his undergrad degree at the University of Virginia, go Wahoos, his MBA at Virginia Tech, go Hokies, and a PhD at the University of Tennessee, go Vols. And interesting fact, his father commanded a U.S. Navy ship in World War II. Chuck, congratulations on the Strategy Mindset 2.0, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. I am very glad to be here with you. You went to the University of Virginia, and then you later got an MBA at Virginia Tech. Did you lose your University of Virginia alumni privileges by going to Virginia Tech for an advanced degree? Well, you know, if that was the case, they wouldn't keep asking me for money oh. every single year for that. <laughs> no. But no, no, it was uh, it was uh, a, a, a matter a matter of opportunity and convenience as I was working in Roanoke, Virginia. And Virginia Tech was conveniently just down the road, and was it was a pleasure to get an MBA from them. Oh, well, those are two great schools, and they are great rivals, too. So I guess you could say uh, Chuck Bamford, he's a uniter, not a divider. So when I interview an author, very often I'll post a picture of what I'm reading before the interview, and I did the same with your book. I posted a picture to it, and I have never gotten the kind of response from my connections on LinkedIn as I did when I announced that I was going to have you on the show and that I was reading this book. So I 
I have a feeling it's going to be uh, it, it's a topic of great interest to uh, to my listeners. One thing I wanted to mention was what years ago after the Civil War, I got out of the army and I uh, went and got an MBA. And I can remember in one of the last courses there was a capstone course where they tie it all together. And I remember the one of the things I still remember from that professor was how he urged students to you know whatever you go off and do in the future try to think strategically even if you're you know grinding away at some low level job or whatever you're doing try to understand what your company's strategy is or or what it could be and that was such great advice and of course you know when you get advice like that when you're young you don't always appreciate it but that was so true and i think that the topics covered in this book uh would just be of such a value to all the marketers and salespeople who listen to the the podcast because it could help them with their own career, but also make them really um, invaluable to their uh, to their companies. I don't know if you uh, have a similar a bit of advice you give to those uh, you know young people that you teach. Oh, I do, and and I I think you said it very well. I think it, it, the more you can think about why. A customer buys from you. The more you can think about what really separates us at this organization from the other organizations all trying to do the same thing, I think the better and more valuable you make yourself to the whole organization. Absolutely. Now, Chuck, when I got the book, I read the introduction and it was exceptionally well done. And I want to read from it. And the reason I say that is because I don't know that I've read an introduction to a book that made me want to read the rest of it <laughs> as much as yours. And you know, the fact that you're a PhD, I sense, and of course, we'll talk about this, you pierce a lot of myths. And in the book, you, it's, it's a short book too. And you demonstrate, obviously, that you have great grasp of this, but also you talk about how greatly misunderstood things are. And I just made me wonder, did you upset a lot of strategy gurus <laughs> when you wrote this book? And I, let me just read from the, the beginning here. Organizations survive and hopefully thrive because they are able to change. No matter how successful the business has been, its future lies in the ability to attain real returns from its competitive advantages. This can only be accomplished by staying well ahead of competitor moves intended to encroach on those advantages, as well as continually designing and implementing new competitive advantages. Strategy is the process of developing and implementing real competitive advantages such that customers will go past your competitors and buy from you at a price that allows for substantial economic or social, in some cases, returns. There are many strategy books on the market. Some are textbooks that are really designed as supports to classroom lectures and aids for the uninitiated to the basics of strategy and how it is employed at the executive level. For the practical business executive, they are thick, mind-numbing reads because they are not meant to be read like a book that are 500 plus pages of text with thousands of citations and a $200 plus price point. I know. I've written a few, and one of my big strategy textbooks is currently headed to its 16th edition. There are also so-called strategy books written by famous CEOs who try to share the wisdom they think they found while running a particular organization. Some of these books provide an interesting insight into history, but only a rare few provide the clue to the application of strategy at another organization in another time and place. Most are simply stories 
Stories are nice for context, but without real frameworks that have been proven to work in many contexts, they are just fun reads with a practical value near zero. Then there are a vast array of books written by people with little or no real understanding of strategy who have decided to anoint themselves with titles like strategy consultant, thought leader, a title I find particularly ridiculous, strategy guru, or my favorite, game changer. They spell out a vague multi-step approach. Putting it in terms of numbers seems to be in vogue, like 10 things or eight paths that they are sure will work and try to develop a cult following of their preach. I've read many of these in a vain attempt to keep ahead of graduate students and executives without the combination of real research that looks at hundreds of organizations and a solid foundation in practical applications across many industries. All you are left with is another story and substantial frustration as you try to apply their eight whatevers. Unfortunately, I have watched and in some cases been involved in the cleanup as some senior leader in an organization reads one of these and decides that it is the path for their organization. They require everyone to read the book and bring the author in to completely confuse the organization with their pop approach to strategy. They are fiction. They look good, they sound good, and they may even seem to make some sense. However, they are dangerous for your business. Chuck, what prompted you to write a sequel to your original Strategy Mindset book, and what's different in this 2.0 version? That's great. And thanks very much for that opening. It makes me smile again. Um, the, uh, the, I originally wrote the book in, uh, back in 2014, 2015, and thought I was done. I was like, there, I've put it out there. We're all finished. Over the next three years, four years, so much changed in strategy. So we learned an awful lot about when and how we should do customer analysis. And we learned a lot more from some studies that were produced by McKinsey um, and one by BCG about different ways we should be thinking about competitor analysis in the run-up to strategy. And then on top of that, there were I, I heard back from a lot of people, Chuck, you didn't include such and such, or Chuck, you should talk more about such and such. And in an effort to keep the books short, I had missed that. So I appreciate that you think it's a short book at just under 200 pages. Um, it grew 75 pages between the first and the second uh, iterations of this thing. Oh, wow. Well, I still thought it was uh, quite short, and I have admiration for people who are able to write short books because I think they're <laughs> more difficult to write. And let me mention one other, one other thing. You're a PhD, and most of the books I've featured on the show by PhDs are absolutely phenomenal. But there have been a few over the years, where I could tell the PhDs were writing for the other PhDs in the faculty lounge. <laughs> they were tortured to read. This is not one of those. This is, um, you know what it reminded me a bit of is uh, Malcolm McDonald in England. He's written over 45 books and he's a, you know, went to Oxford. He's got PhDs and uh, I think he's recently retired as a professor, but he writes in a similar, a similar way, almost like Again, one of my favorite movies, and it's one of the greatest films of all time, which was Zoolander. In that movie, the Will Ferrell character says, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. And I got a sense of that from your book, like, oh, <laughs> it must be driving you nuts to see how strategy is misunderstood. But let me ask you, you write uh, that despite decades of research, businesses are still terrible at strategy. Why, why do you think that is? 
You know, it's it's uh, it's stunning to me that it continues this way. So I think fundamentally, it goes back to who's running businesses. And the people who are running businesses, many, many, many of them were trained back long ago when they thought SWAT was strategy. Or they've come up from other fields of, of uh, you know, either business or economics or engineering, and they just have never been trained in strategy. And they think that uh, somehow they should just know it, so they dare not ever mention to anybody they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to, uh, I, you warm the cockles of my heart several times uh, in the book when you write, a winning business strategy must focus on why customers really buy a product or service from an organization and what distinguishes that purchase in the eye of the customer. Strategy has to be designed and crafted for the real needs and wants of specific customer groups. So before we go much further, if you don't mind, can you remind people the difference between strategy and tactics? Because I I sense there's a lot of confusion amongst the two. Yeah, and I think people love to use uh, and uh, different monikers for things. You know, they come up with goals and objectives and tactics. You know, if we just label everything, we'll be able to we'll be able to figure it all out. Most of strategy is still art, um, and there is fortunately some science to it. The the tactics are probably the way we actually have to go about implementing the details of the implementation. The strategy should be relatively straightforward, and you've said it already well, that is, it is really going to come down to what separates us from our competitors that's real, where we could go eyeball to eyeball with the customer and say, you need to buy from us because, and have it be real. And so that's a combination, and we may get into this later, a combination of sort of the standard table stake things that customers expect, along with some things that will truly separate us in the minds of customers. And, you know, I'll just throw this out, Douglas, you know, you see these commercials all the time. Uh, I seem to be inundated with them down here, where these personal injury lawyers are all advertising on TV. And you're you're in Florida, right? Oh, yeah. And so, oh my gosh, (laughs) I, I just moved here about three months ago, and I'm still trying to get used to that. And one after another, right, you should get from us because we'll take care of you. We're for the customer. We want to win. And it just goes on and on. And they're all saying the exact same thing because there's no differentiation between them that they can identify. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had uh, back when I my firm did more advertising, back when advertising used to work really well, <laughs> we had a personal injury client. And uh, we actually differentiated these guys. But um, yeah, I I see that. And you know who it bothers even more than someone like you is attorneys. (laughs) They hate that. You know, any attorney that's not a personal injury lawyer, they they really feel uh, bad that they they are painted with that same brush as those, uh, well, you know, they're they're ambulance chasers. But I don't want to say any more because I don't want to get sued. So Chuck, I just loved how you pierced some of the myths. Uh, one of the people that saw that I was going to be interviewing you on, uh, they saw this on LinkedIn. They said, what's your favorite part? And I said, I think it's when he pierces these myths of strategy. And I wanted to talk uh, about a, a couple of them, if you don't mind. I, and I see this all 
the time, whether as a consumer or with clients over the years. And the very first myth you have, and I want you to please don't be gentle, tear it to pieces. Myth number one, my people are my competitive advantage. What's wrong with that, Chuck? <laughs> well, nothing's wrong if you just want to have a nice moniker and put it out front um, and say that. You know, it's it, and I, I was, uh, I'm in sort of a, a pitched um, run with that with one of my clients right now. Look, people are how we implement our strategy. People are the ones that deliver on the strategy promise in my organization, but the person is not a competitive advantage. And to try to claim, for instance, that we have better people than our competitors is just garbage. The All of our competitors have the same number of incredible people, outstanding people, good people, poor people, and people we should have fired last week. <laughs> and so we've got that same run at ours. And no matter what you think about how good a job you do at hiring, your people are no better than anyone else's. So I try to set that aside first of all. And even if people don't buy into it, I say, just let me do this for a moment so we could possibly get at something that's real. But the other flip of this is, okay, you buy that it's your people. So now you're going to invest all your money in your people. By the way, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Investing into competitive advantages that people deliver, I get that. But let's say we're going to do this. And then all of a sudden, Jane leaves the company, right? She goes to another competitor. You go, oh, my God, that's it. Jane's left the company. We're closing it down, shutting it off. No, we're going to hire somebody to replace Jane. In fact, we lose 100 people. It's not we're not going out of business. We're going to hire and re-go. It might take us some time. It might slow processes up. It's not that people are not important. They are crucially important, but they are not the competitive advantage. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, you broke up. You broke up during the question a little bit too, Doug. Oh, okay. I'll I'll clean that up. I apologize for the technical problem. So, uh, tell us about the, the the banker story. Sure. So, I used to uh, live and work in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you know anything about Charlotte, it's basically the second banking capital of the United States, and there's a bank on every corner. And one of the CEOs of one of the big banks was was one of my clients and was telling me that it was his people, period. They just had better people than everybody else. And I said, well, so if we go out on the street, and I don't know, we walk across the street, there's a little company there called Bank of America. And I said, so you're going to go to Hugh McCall, and you're going to say, Hugh, what's your competitive advantage? And he goes, ah, Chuck, I wish I could tell you it was my people, but unfortunately, all the good ones are over at X Bank, so we just left with the schlock we have to deal with. We just do the best we can. It's like, no, he's going to say the same thing, or hopefully that, no, this is what our competitive advantages are, and our people deliver on that. Yes. So it was very uh, interesting, and of course, through the rest of the book, I was better, even better able to understand why that 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 dog doesn't hunt. So let's talk about uh, another one. You mentioned SWOT analysis earlier. Can you explain what a SWOT analysis is and then explain myth two, which is SWOT analysis will allow us to develop a strategy? Yeah. I, and unfortunately, SWOT's been around forever. When it was first crafted together and, and put out by Michael Porter, it was, it was pre presented as uh, an approach, 
a way of thinking. So do we want to know the strengths? Of course we do. Do we want to know our weaknesses? Of course we do. But just putting a bunch of people in a room with yellow post-it notes, sticking things up going, well, I just think this is a strength. And so I put it up there. Hey, let's move this weakness around. It's just a bunch of opinions. Mm -hmm. So opinions don't get us anywhere. And we end up with the same kind of stuff that isn't going to do any going to do us any good. So SWAT was long ago sort of put aside. If you want to use it for presentation, that's great, fine. But let's use some real analysis to figure out what those strengths are, the competitive advantages. And let's use some real analysis to figure out what the weaknesses are, right? The orthodox things that are below median. Let's 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 not just pop management this thing because it's easy and it feels good. And and this is actually one of the one of the issues we we run into is that SWAT, if you're not a strategy professor, you're not a strategy, most strategy folks don't do this and they haven't done it for decades. But a lot of people learn, and I used to quote strategy from other courses, much like it would be like me teaching accounting. God help us all. <laughs> all of a sudden, some professor in marketing, and this is where it comes out of a lot with all, all apologies to everybody with their marketing degrees, some professor in marketing decides to use SWAT as the teaching a tool to use strategy, and it's just simply not strategy. Well, I should uh, clarify that you did get your MBA in finance, so you probably could be teaching accounting. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm married to a PhD in accounting. And so I'm going to argue that, no, that's not my core <laughs> capability. And my finance knowledge dates back to the 1990s. These folks who do finance, they run circles around me. <laughs> I, I, I like to say, Douglas, that I, I am arrogant enough to believe that I am really good in strategy. And up at my little stack pipe, I'm great. But the moment I step off my little stack pipe and talk about something else, it's like, ah, and I die. <laughs> That's great. Well, that sounds very strategic because you talk about the same, uh, some of the same concepts in the book. But you, you closed out that one section with uh, three words, don't do SWAT. <laughs> okay. Period. <laughs> End of discussion. If they take nothing away from this, don't do SWAT. You're going to be better off. Your whole organization is going to be better off. So myth number five, quality or customer service will be our strategic advantage. What's wrong with that? Well, well, it's that everybody claims that they're there for the customer. Well, of course, and we have the best people delivering to the customer. So, of course, it's about customer service, right? Everyone claims it. In fact, other than, say, Dick's Last Resort, can you name a company that says, man, our, our goal is really to piss off the customer. Our goal is to really be bad. And if we're really bad, you know, other than Dick's Last Resort, no, they all claim that they do things for the customer and they have the best customer service. Well, first of all, customers, it, all it sounds like is Charlie Brown's teacher talking in the background, number one. Mm -hmm. rah, 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 rah. Number two, it's just not true the level of customer service expectations tends to all kind of hover around the same level. Let's say you actually want to make customer service a competitive advantage. All right, let's get past the concept of customer service first, right? Let's get underneath it. Tell me what you do that really gives you the competitive. What's the things that you do? And now I can compare those to my competitors. Second is you're going to have to do it so far above your competitors that 
customers will actually see it and it has to be consistent. So you can make this a competitive advantage, but it's scary and hard. And same thing falls for quality. I mean, my gosh, I was working with a company, manufacturing company down in Texas, and they were like, Chuck, we just simply have the best quality. And I'm like, how do you know that? Look, <laughs> ours is at 0.0004 microns, and that beats every competitor. I was like, well, what's your nearest competitor? Well, they're 0.0036, which is not even comparable. And I'm like, oh my God, you honestly believe this. That's what scares me, right? The The fact is that the customers not only don't care as much, they can't detect the difference. Right. Well, it's, and again, it's important to that person who you know might be an engineer, uh, but that's not important to, it's not as important to the customer. It's really table stakes. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. I want to go on to uh, yet another great line that just, jumped off the page at me. There is simply no way to develop a strategy without putting yourself in the shoes of the customer and viewing the choices for your product or service the way that customer sees those choices. And chapter three, it's titled, Know Your Current Customers and Your Competitors. So in that uh, chapter, you outline uh, six ways to uh, six approaches that executives should use to gain a, a better understanding of their their competition and we won't go through all of them but the very first one was develop a deep understanding of the current perfect customer explain what you mean there yeah so you're really picking on the the issue that strategy starts outside of the organization right strategy starts with the customer these most companies want to just talk about how great they are, but the reality is customers are looking at them and all of their competitors. So we like to, the concept in strategy is the concept of the perfect customer and the perfect customer instantly gets your value proposition and is willing to pay you for it. So if we think about the perfect customer, now they might push back a little bit, but fundamentally they get the value prop you're offering and they're going to pay you for that value proposition. So if we have a good handle on what that customer looks like, what they're trying to get, why they're a perfect customer, then we have the opportunity to go pursue the market for more of those perfect customers because our competitive advantage will align beautifully with them. So you describe these strategy-destroying techniques as price reductions, sale pricing, discounting, special deals, and cost-saving measures that impact the customer experience. Why are those strategy-destroying techniques? Yeah, because every every one of those, and there's quite a few that are listed, and they're just oh, that's actually, just yeah, the there's, main. There's two more actually. I'm sorry, I left those out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, and if I look at the research, it, there it just it just rolls on and on and on. If you look at the whole res- on the research on that, um, because each one of those changes the dynamic of what the value proposition is and pulls you number one away from what you have that are advantages and what you're doing, and number two make that the thing that your competitors can now use to take customers away from you. Right, right. I just thought I found that uh, interesting, and it's uh, sort of a knee-jerk reaction that so many companies have, and I would argue probably because they don't have a very good uh, strategy. So that's about the customer. Uh, let's talk about the competitors. It was very interesting in the book where you remind readers of 
who companies should be considering as it relates to their competitors. And it's more than just the, it seems to me like a lot of companies will look at other companies that are very similar to theirs and think that that's the competition. But in terms of having a pretty rich picture of who your competition is, what are some of the other things that companies should be doing as it relates to building their strategy? Yeah, I think two. There are two things there. I, I, you, I thought you brought up one really effectively. Um, the one is that when I look at competitors, and we work with lots and lots of clients, um, they typically see the whole world as their competition. They list tremendous numbers of competitors, but we know that customers B to B, B to C can only really evaluate and only really evaluate three to five competitors. So. Whom should we be using to determine and develop our strategy? We call them, I mean, the generally referred to in strategy as bump competitors. Mm-hmm. That is, if we win the deal, who lost the deal, right? Who didn't they choose? If they choose somebody else's product or services, whom did they choose, right? And they, these are ones we are bumping up against. So that usually lays the foundation for the first three, sometimes four competitors. And then we also would like to have some proxy competitor in there or competitors that are doing unique things or things that really could disrupt um, our ability to make a sale or a repeat sale. So it's a, it's a loose science, right? In that what we're trying to do is not do voice of the customer. We're not doing market analysis. What we're doing is we're trying to establish what we need in order to be able to determine competitive advantages. Another thing that was interesting was that you may have some pretty direct competitors, but they're not really going to change. They're not going to do anything. So maybe you don't pay quite yeah. as much attention to them. Yeah, you really get it. There's a, there's a lot of, well, there's some real nuance in the book, um, helping people sort of dice out which competitors are most concerning, right? Which ones we can kind of really not worry about. Watch, but they're not going to react to anything we do because they're off running on their own, either their own what path or they're just desperately trying to stay alive. I thought that was that was interesting. You might want to pay more attention to those that might actually respond to a strategic change. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to quote from page 65. You say, armed with a solid understanding of the market in which the business competes, we now turn our attention inward and examine the business. Strategy consists of just two elements. Half of strategy is maintaining conventional operations at or slightly above the median expectations of the customer. The only conventional operations elements that need to be evaluated are those that impact your ability to attain or retain customers or those that impact your ability to attain or retain franchise employees. The other half of strategy is focusing the whole organization around two or three true competitive advantages so compelling that your customers will go past your competitors and come to you because of those advantages without referring to, dis- to discounting. And then you write, one of the mistakes made by many, many managers, leaders, business owners, and executives, whatever title encourages you, pay attention, <laughs> is holding the view that everything in the organization has to excel. I found that very interesting. Explain what you mean that you don't have to have everything just extraordinary. <laughs> um, so, 
you 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 hit it you hit it on the head. They try to do everything and they want everything to be. We want the world's best accounting department. We want the world's best accounts payable. We want the world's best you know whatever. And the reality is that customer. Think about payroll. Payroll is always one of those amazing things to me. So is payroll crucial? Yes. Do we have to do payroll? Yes. Right. Has any customer ever come to you and said, "Hey, look." I'm going to tell you why we're coming to your company. We're going to buy from you because we've heard you have just a first-rate payroll department. (laughs) (laughs) It's orthodox. So how well should you do it? You should do it. You should do it well, right? Don't want to be terrible at it, but you don't need to do it any better than the median in the industry because no one's going to come to you or leave you because of how that is done. So you, I, I love thinking about restaurants, uh, Douglas. I, so I, I go to a restaurant, you know, go to a nice restaurant. You know, back in the pre-COVID days when we used to go out to yeah, restaurants. Yeah, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, let me think if I can remember what that was like. Oh, yeah. But a, a and, really nice one, like with a maybe a famous uh, chef or something. Ooh, ooh. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. yeah. So you go to the restaurant and you expect somebody to seat you and hopefully relatively quickly come get your drink order and there's nice silverware on. And you can go down a long list of things. They've got carpet and lighting and all kinds of stuff inside of the place. And none of that is why you chose the restaurant, mm-hmm. right? But if you don't do the orthodox well, so you look down and your fork has got food crusted on it. You're like, oh, that's just disgusting. And you send it back, the waiter or waitress takes it back and they bring back another one. They put it down on your place and it's still got food crusted on it. And you're like, can y'all not do – dishwashing is the most pathetically orthodox thing to do in a restaurant, right? We actually don't know what clean is, but we know what it is not. I don't care if Bobby Flay himself is serving you. If the food, if the Orthodox stuff are not there, you're not going back because it doesn't meet those expectations. So most of what is done most days, most organizations is Orthodox. It's the table stakes things that we have to have in place for customers, just what they expect. So I want to get all those in your median. And by the way, that's where you cut costs, right? You can cut costs on orthodox things as long as you don't fall too far below median. And then what we want to do, assuming we get that level playing field with customers, and again, you look at it B2B, B2C, doesn't matter. Customers cannot detect sort of plus or minus about 5% of the median area. So as long as we're in that range, we're now in the game. Now our competitive advantages, if we could figure out two, three real advantages, now we've really got something. Yes, and uh, you talk about maybe a, a retail bank having Mont Blanc pens. <laughs> it's a, don't, don't do that. You don't need to. But the, another one was back to the restaurant, as you said, you know, uh, any restaurant could have a, a $1,500, you know, in a commercial dishwasher machine, and that would be fine. And yet some companies will say, oh, no, we need to get the $30,000 dishwasher. And it's like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> You're going too far in areas that just don't matter. And you, you also write, you will get a better bang for your dollar by cleaning up orthodox areas of the operation than you will from all the competitive advantages you can craft. <laughs> so very refreshing. Now let's move on though. Resource-based analysis, RBA. Can we walk briefly through the these steps of the of the RBA? Sure, absolutely. So, um, I I didn't create 
RBA. So it's been around for, oh, it's probably been the predominant approach since the uh, late late 80s, early 90s. Um, and depending on the consulting company you talk to, sometimes it's or where you learn, you might, it might be called Vrio or Vrist or Vrin. They have all kinds of little names. Um, at heart, I'm a professor. And so I call it resource-based analysis. And the approach that I use is one used by a number of us. Most of us call it kind of the practical strategy approach. And that is rare most things fail at rare. So let's start with rare, right? So rare is, is this thing that you think you have relatively unique compared to your competitors, right? And this is where things like my people will fail. So you, oh, we've got better people. Great. Well, let's compare them to your competitors. And oh no, it's about the same, you know? So it fails at rare. If it fails at rare, that's great. Then it's orthodox, And since half of strategy is making sure that we are doing well at the orthodox elements, that's fantastic. So rare is just a, is it relatively unique? And by the way, we have a rule of thumb. If one, if one other competitor is doing it just as good as we are, it's still pretty darn rare. If more than one is, then it's not rare. And if you look at the statistics that have been done over a period of time, most things will fail at rare. Most of the things people think separate them will fail at rare. Mm. And so durable then has to do with time, right? Well, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it actually has multiple aspects to it. So durable is 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 fun because durable is how long you get to keep the advantage, right? So people come up with new ideas. Let's do this. No one else is doing it. And you're like, wow, look at it. Oh, it sure is rare, right? But it's not durable. That is durable is how long you get to have it before your competitors can take it away from you. So competitors, darn those damn competitors, they won't just let us make money. They're always trying to take our customers away from us. So we've got to have something that we can keep for a period of time. And I go into the analysis of that in the book on economic returns and how you do the do some of the analysis. But fundamentally, it's three things. How long would it take the competitor to match us, right? Do they have the organizational capability to do it? Another one is, could they do it financially, right? Do they have the financial resources? And another is, do they even have the desire, any <laughs> kind of strategic desire? And as you know, from stuff... My favorite one is that. My favorite one is the competitors think we're stupid, and so they won't do it, and they'll let us have it for a period of time. Right, right. They'll think, oh, they're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, I hope they think that. (laughs) So then let's go on to explain what relatively non-substitutable means and what you should be thinking uh, for this third part. So you got to think of this as a, a tool to go through these things. So you've got this thing that you think is a competitive advantage. So you got it through rare and then you examine durability and you don't think any of the competitors can take it away from you. The next thing is to really look at what substitutes are. So it's a, looking at this same thing from another aspect. So now I'm going to look and I'm going to see what the what are the substitutes for this? Because clearly there are substitutes. Clearly people are doing other things. The question is, do you think they're a good substitute or a bad substitute for what you're offering? And there's some statistical stuff out there, but it doesn't really hold water. So the reality comes down to management teams should put together a list of what the substitutes that are being used 
in place of whatever it is we have? How else are customers gaining that, whatever that is? And then do you as a team think it's a good substitute? Why? Or a bad substitute? By the way, if it's a good substitute, then it's not a competitive advantage. You don't want to hang your strategy hat on something like that. Right. And then the fourth one is relatively non-tradable. Yeah, and this is the this is the bizarre one, um, Douglas. So um, when you look at the research that's been done, um, only about three percent of the time will something fail here. So there are a lot of people that just skip it. You met, you know, I mentioned earlier that resource-based analysis is also referred to as VRIN or VRIO or VRIST. So you know, VRIN and VRIO don't even talk about this. VRIST obviously does with the T. So this is just an quick analysis. Can it be bought on the open market? You're telling me it's a competitive advantage, but it can be bought in the open market. It's really not a competitive advantage, right? Or can this thing that you have be easily sold if a new CEO came in and sold it and you'd still have a company? Then don't hang your strategy hat on that. And then there are a couple of other little um, nuances to it, but this is a very a very minor element in the analysis. It brought to mind for me the story of how Amazon, I believe they patented the one-click ordering, and then Apple just later licensed it from them. Yeah, yeah. And so then it's not, so for a period of time, they had it as a singular competitive advantage. But as soon as they're willing to sell it, then you don't hang your strategy hat. That's not why, that's not one of the separators for them anymore. Right. And finally, can you explain what people should be thinking about on that fifth one, which is, is it valuable? Yeah. And this one's crucial. So you've got something that's rare and durable and non-substitutable, maybe even non-tradable. You've examined it, right? The only matters if you can get value. So we've studied value up one side and back down the other. Value comes from one of three ways. You can either charge more for this cool thing that you have. By the way, my personal favorite, charge more, <laughs> right? But some people say, oh, Chuck, you know, dog eat dog business. We can't charge more. Okay. Does it cost you less to have this because of the structures you have in place, the, the location you have, whatever it turns out to be. And if that's not the case, do, can you get customers to go past your competitors and come to you because you have this cool thing? Now, the trifecta is to get all three. I charge more, it costs me less, and customers go past competitors in order to be able to get, get whatever this cool thing is that I have. We might see that in some elements of Tesla, for instance. But most organizations, it's you're just trying to get at least one of these values out of your competitive advantage. And then you want to metric that and really watch it. Such a great question to ask. And so let's say a company has this strategy in place. That is not the finish line. That is really the starting gun. And I'm going to explain why. You write in Chapter 7, let's be honest. I believe that it is relatively fun to work through what constitutes your organization's competitive advantages. It takes some discipline and effort on the part of the team to put aside preconceived notions of competitive advantage, along with a willingness to think creatively about where the organization has true advantages. However, it is the fun part of the strategy. It is much easier to figure out what you should do than it is to actually do it. Far more people plan out an exercise regimen than actually follow through with the effort. And then you write, implementation of strategy is the focus 
of the rest of this book. So I would argue that's about half, the second half of the book is about how to actually go do it. So I think it seems like people need to be careful and not thinking, okay, we've got it written down. We might even turn it into a plaque. <laughs> you're just you're just getting started. So let me ask you, this is a section on uh, which we won't spend too much time on, but mission, vision, values, principles. What is a mission statement and, and what, what is it really supposed to do and, and have in it rather than something that makes the CEO feel good? Well, a mission statement that is well-crafted, short, simple, has a number of criteria to it that somebody can remember and can actually act on. So you will see that the theme of the second half of the book in implementation, although we go through lots of pieces, which you see, the theme is communication. The theme is how do I get this message out? How do I ensure that this message is out? How do I get all of my employees moving in relatively the same direction? So then a, a vision statement, again, these are all terms that are just blurred, I think, for a lot of companies. Oh, strategy, tactic, mission, vision. <laughs> Remind listeners what a vision statement is supposed to do. Sure. So that almost argues we should do this in rapid fire. Let me, let me think about this in a rapid fire. A mission statement, let me go backwards a little bit. A mission statement is how you win now. A vision statement if you wish to have one, and a lot of companies don't, a vision statement is why we exist, where we hope to go. The vision is what kind of gets everybody on board going, yeah, I want, I want to be a part of that. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to see things go because they're committing their life. They're committing or at least a part of their life to working for this company. And so vision done well can be extraordinarily compelling. So it's like the event horizon. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it also helps with attracting uh, talent to your to come to your work at your firm. I would sure think so. I mean, <laughs> the, you you have a really compelling vision statement, and all of a sudden there are a lot of people who go. That's what I want to help make happen. Don't know how we're going to do it, but that's how I want to make. That's what I want to make happen. Yes, or as uh, UVA grad Tina Fey said in uh, Thirty Rock, I want to go to there. <laughs> <laughs> So, that was a very nice ad of the UVA. Thank you. Yes, yes. So uh, last, I just had two other quick questions about the, the book. Uh, let's talk about measuring success. You write that strategy metrics are designed to both guide and demonstrate that the activities of employees are reinforcing the competitive strategy. In our effort to implement strategy, we are not trying to measure classic accounting or financial metrics of performance. Those will be measured and should be measured, but they are lagging variables that are a result of the activities by employees. So what is an example of activities that should be measured, which are not lagging, uh, to determine if you are implementing the strategy correctly or at all? Right. So this is a huge area. We are really good at metrics, right? I mean, God, we track ROI and we track customer accounts and we track number of customers who return and we track all these things, but sales growth, et cetera. But these are not metrics that tell us, first of all, what employees are doing to get us there. And they give us no guidance on what to tweak, move, et cetera, in order to attain that. So imagine going to the fry clerk at McDonald's, right? They're the mayor making the fries, standing there with the little basket, shaking the basket. You walk up to him and go, dude, 
I want a 6% sales increase on French fries and walks away. <laughs> right. And the guy's standing there shaking the basket and goes, all right, yeah, pours it in, adds some salt to it. Start. They, it means nothing to them. So what we want to do from a strategy point of view is craft metrics, activity metrics that actually drive, hopefully, the behavior of the employee toward whatever we think are competitive advantages, right? So let's assume, for instance, that our competitive advantages is something like the, the best available selection of anybody in our in our field, right? That's, that's going to be. So what do we want? We want activities that uh, the employee has control over the numerator, right? Mm-hmm. So we could do something like, you know, the number of items on hand to complete a project divided by the total number of projects that can be used for by customers. We want something where the employee can actually do something and where if the numerator moves up or down in some cases, then what we believe is that's better for the organization. And then as managers, it's our responsibility to figure out what those value drivers are, or those connectors are, so that back here, post hoc, we look back, sales went up, or ROI went up, or ROIC went up, or all the lovely ones they love to say. Right, right. So uh, be careful of looking at just the lagging indicators and you know, provide something to that fry clerk that's actually going to be helpful. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So last thing I wanted to ask about, which is about structure. Uh, you, you're right. I found that people are all in with developing strategy right up to the point where we start talking about reorganizing the business to align its operations with the new strategy. And then you write, the long, hard truth of outstanding organizational performance is that structure follows strategy. Have you seen companies that have been able to change their strategy without being able to restructure in some way? Um, Unfortunately, I can come up with one, but Let's go with virtually none. Yeah. So it's it's a rare, and, and I, I did not coin this. This has been coined for 40 plus years in the strategy field, but st- structure follows strategy. So you've got this new strategy. You've got it figured out what your competitors are. You've got to figure out who your perfect customers are for this. You're increasing your, you want to increase your hit rate. You've got a structure around those competitive advantages. If you don't, if you go, no, 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 Chuck, we're just going to leave it just the way we are before, then all of those old things are going to stay in place. Everything's going to stay in place. And then it was just an, it was just an exercise because one of the things employees look to to figure out whether you're real about this, one of the communication tools is how you have structured the organization. And if you structure the organization to make these things important, woo. Right. The uh, it also harkens back to the one uh, chart you have about the different types of mission statements, whether they go from good to to bad. And you write what the implied goal is, and then in the last column you have what the employee reaction is, and it really made me laugh out loud. Like uh, one of them was uh, the employees might say, we loosely know what we want to do now. Good thing that this statement doesn't affect me day to day <laughs> or, or, oh, it's just, it's, it's just hilarious. So Chuck, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I, I would hope that they would take away that there is a science, that there there are processes that will enable you to get closer and closer 
to something that's a real strategy. It's still a lot of art, but there are a lot, there's a lot we know and a lot that can work and it can work really well. Yes. And what you've outlined in the book could be looked upon as a series of guardrails to keep people from hurting themselves. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So what's one thing a listener could do today? Just anything uh, to put in action one of the many ideas from your book. I'll tell you, uh, here's here's the fun, easiest one. People are comfortable with the orthodox. They're comfortable with what they're currently doing. Go find, go take that list that you create every year of the, you know, we got to work on this, 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 and it's 19 or 20 long. And every year you come back and it's still 19 or 20 long because it hasn't changed. We've got a lot of research that says, take the top, take two of them. Doesn't even need to be the top two. Pick one that's a low-hanging fruit. Pick one that's hard. Pick one that has a big customer impact. You choose. Doesn't really end up mattering. And solve those two orthodox things. Put all the energy of your organization into solving two things that frustrate customers. You will get a better hit than anything else you could do. Yes, yes. It's tied in with that uh, quote I had earlier. Excellent advice. Excellent. At marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable to your uh, company site, your LinkedIn profile, and all those uh, books that uh, we've talked about. So listeners can find the books, they can connect with you, and I hope that they'll reach out to you and say, hey, thanks for being on that Knuckleheads podcast. You know, there's a million podcasts out there, and Dr. Bamford has picked this one to be on. So for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Strategy Mindset 2.0, A Practical Guide to the Design and Implementation of Strategy. The author is Dr. Chuck Bamford. Chuck, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for the opportunity, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Podcast.